Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Helen. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you for asking me to come to your Brentwood meeting and share. Um, I'm from the South Bay area. I'm from Long Beach, California, for those of you who are uh, out of state. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1976, and I have 21 years of abstinence. Um, I was a, a, you know, an overweight child. I got a really early start with my compulsive overeating. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. I will say that. Um, but I hit 240 pounds when I was only 14 years old. And uh, that was, you know, because there was a lot of food available. And I think that when you have a lot of food available, you know, and it was all junk food that was bought at the day old bakery, that that is when my maturity ended that if the food is there and it's an option, then oftentimes it's the only option. And I think that's part of the reason I never had growth and development. I had maturity problems. <laughs> I still have maturity problems. I remember when I was in nursing school, the instructor pulled me aside and she said, I just don't think you're mature enough to be a nurse. It's like, yeah, well, what's your point? <laughs> so um, I, uh, you know, lost 100 pounds in Weight Watchers. My poor mother, you know, she, we were a kind of a hamburger helper kind of family. And she bought all that food, which as you know, is, you know, a lot of lean protein and meat and chicken and vegetables, stuff we never had. And then for me to put every pound back on, she bought me all new clothes. I mean, she was more devastated than I was, you know. And uh, she said, she was like, what are you doing to yourself, you know? And I can still remember my first binge coming off that diet like it was yesterday. I was at the LA County Fair, the one in Pomona. And um, I was standing in line to get one of those, they call them Balboa bars. I won't go into it, but they're good. And it was the first like bad food that I had off of my Weight Watchers diet. And I, as I was standing in line to get the bar, I noticed I was shaking and drooling. And the thought occurred to me, nobody else in this line is shaking and drooling. I think I have a problem, a big problem. But that didn't stop me from getting that, and it didn't stop me from binging my way through the county fair. And that weekend I put on 10 pounds and I said something we all say, boy, I learned my lesson. I'm never gonna let that happen again. And it's like one moment you stand on the scale, you're 140, and the next minute you're 240. And you're like that guy they talk about in the big book that's hitting the bar saying, how did I end up here again? It's just so confusing because it defies an explanation. Um, and I had no explanation and nobody around me had an explanation. And so, um, you know, I gained all the weight back and, you know, it was uh, miserable. Um, 
also, um, you know, I, my early childhood, my dad died when I was three. And uh, I think, you know, when that happened to me, I, um, everything became wrapped around that, you know, I had a lot of problems struggling. And I know a lot of kids didn't have a dad or their dad was somewhere else or their parents were divorced. But there was part of me that did not believe my dad was really dead. And a lot of me that lived in this fantasy thinking that he was going to come back like it was a Shirley Temple movie. And that he would come back and take away all my problems. That all my problems were because I didn't have a dad. And, you know, then my mom got married and it was such a tumultuous household. It was so quiet before this man arrived. And it wasn't because he was a bad man. Yeah, I'll just tell you a little bit about him. My mom married a man she wanted to be my father, and he wasn't. He was a barber, and she wanted him to have the uh, income of an attorney. And when, she, when he, she couldn't get that, she constantly verbally abused him and berated him and yelled at him. There was always shouting matches about money. He had a petty, petty gambling problem. Uh, he was a barber, and from what I guess, from what I gather, not a very good barber, because she was constantly telling, just to show you the level of, that this man functioned at, she would have to remind him, she'd say, Larry, you're working with the public, remember to brush your teeth. That was the kind of relationship they had. That was the kind of house I grew up in, where she was always you know, trying to mold and manipulate. She was like the person we talk about and that is arranging the players. And I personally think, you know, he just did the best that he possibly could with whatever it was that God uh, gave him. So anyway, uh, I went to nursing school. I graduated. And then by this time, my mom divorced the barber she had another child. I had a 13-year-old brother. I was working on the 11 to 7 shift, 100 pounds overweight. Um, you know, I had not been out on a date, and I was 20 years old, 21 years old, you know. And I worked on the night shift, and I just took care of my mother and my younger brother. I was like the head of house. I supported them, and that was my life. Um, I learned about Overeaters Anonymous from a coworker, and this is what she said. I went to a place, it's called Overeaters Anonymous. I didn't like it. I didn't think it was for me, but I think it would be great for a person like you. I'm still not sure what that meant, but I said, oh, they have that? Because I knew they had something called AA, and I thought, oh, you know, I often, I already had known I was powerless over food. So I get to my first meeting and it just everything about that meeting is so, it, it was in West Covina, is so ingrained in my mind. I can remember all the people there and I can remember how joyous it was. There was this spirit of levity and hope that I had not seen before. And a lot of thin people, I can still remember the, the speaker's name and she was wearing a dress and she twirled around and she told us, like twirled around like a ballerina and told us what size the dress was. I think it was a size eight. I don't know. And everybody stood up and clapped. It was very, uh, 
very exhilarating. And the takeaway from that meeting was, this isn't my fault. They told me I had a disease that I did not cause and I could not cure and that I was powerless. And I knew enough to believe that. And I knew that my life felt unmanageable. Even though I kept my, and I think the person taking the candle, congratulations, by the way. Yeah, you talked about, you know, a, a small life. And I had such a small life, just work and sleep and eat, work and sleep and eat. And I think, you know, the obsession not only was with the weight for me, the, I, once I got into OA, the obsession was with this idea of perfection. And I actually thought that all of you were in Overeaters Anonymous to help me stay on my diet. I didn't grasp the concept of the steps and that anything about me was inherently needing to be changed. And, um, and I want to say I, I was not a visitor to this program. I was a member, and I availed myself to all the membership benefits. I had a sponsor. I went to meetings. I went to three meetings a week. And back then, there weren't all these meetings. And so sometimes we would have to travel 45 minutes to an hour to go to a big fancy meeting. And we'd get there, and there'd be hundreds of people there. They'd be all dressed up. It was just a much you know, different environment back then. And so I struggled the first nine years. And I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. That was just awful. My worst binging took place in this program. But you know what's so funny? When you're young, you can binge and diet and keep kind of a normal body weight. I kept like 50 pounds off doing that, you know. But I never could take a chip because I was never abstinent more than a couple weeks. And I... And I was trying to diet, you know, eat 900 calories. And when you're 21 years old, you need a lot more than that, double that. And if you don't eat double that, your body is going to force you to eat it. And, uh, you know, because I was a nurse, you know, nurses have access to a lot of graham crackers. <laughs> so you probably know that. And so I'd eat a graham cracker in between lunch and dinner. And I'd throw up my hands and say, oh, well. I've blown it anyway. Looks like I can't do this. And then I would binge until I drop. Then I'd wake up confused, disoriented, sometimes wouldn't know where I was, what time it was, if I'd missed work, how much I had eaten. It, well, anybody that's gone through this, and I think most of you have, uh, the binge is more devastating than being overweight. It's just incomprehensible. And I threw a lot of cakes in the trash. Uh, you know, because I would get whole cakes and then throw them in the trash. And in Overeaters Anonymous, we used to have this thing where we'd say the trash cans only lay away. <laughs> if you're really serious, you're going to throw it down the garbage disposal because many of us have gone back to the trash to retrieve food, you know. So um, I'll tell you when I first got abstinent, when I was willing to eat a normal amount of calories for a normal person my age and just refrain from a few trigger foods, like for me, which was sugar. You know, I uh, 
refrain from, I haven't had a Reese's peanut butter cup in 21 years. And I used to binge on those. I haven't had a donut. So um, although my abstinence has not been perfect, I, that abstinence lasted me 12 years. And then I went out again. So that's why I only have 21 years of abstinence today. But for me, I had to give up the dieting and the perfection and the rigidity to have some sanity around food, you know, and um, <clears throat> I had to work the steps. So um, at my first meeting, there was an old man, when I say old, that I mean the age that I am now. And his name was Webster and he was considered the sage of Overeaters Anonymous. He was very brilliant. I think he was an engineer or something, I don't know, but he used to say all these weird things that at the time did not make much sense to me. I don't, I didn't know what they had to do with the steps or Overeaters Anonymous, but now I know. Now that I'm old myself, I know exactly what he meant. He used to tell this riddle, he used to say, do you want to know the difference between a psychotic and a neurotic? And everybody would be looking. This would be during his pitch. And he'd say, oh, I'll tell you the difference. The psychotic thinks two plus two is three. The neurotic knows two plus two is four. But he can't stand it. And that was me. I knew reality as it was coming down the pike at me. But I didn't like it. It wasn't fair. I was, I was going to change it. It shouldn't be this way. I was going to tell somebody. I was going to write a letter. I was the perpetual, perpetual malcontent, particularly on the workplace. I've done a lot of writing on the workplace. And let me just tell you what my writing revealed. I like to work at a job where I get security and benefits and money. And I know how much money that will be. I like the security of that. I do not want to be a small business owner because that's very risky and I could lose some money and I might have to work more than eight hours a day. And I don't like any of those sacrifices. So I want to come to your company and work for you and get money, but then I want to tell you how to run your business. <laughs> that was my problem. It doesn't work that way. You see, the problem with me wasn't really eating too much food. The problem with me was perception. That's why you need a sponsor. Sometimes your sponsors perceive things differently. And because my perceptions were askew and I couldn't read the world like I think normal people read the world, um, I responded to the world inappropriately. And um, if you stay around, you'll write, hopefully the big book style, because if one writes the big book style, it can only lead you to one logical conclusion. And that is, you are a participant in your own life, you are complicit in your destiny and your choices, and basically most of us get the lives we want. If we don't have a certain life, a certain way, I remember one time a friend said to me, I'm 40 and I'm not gonna have a child. And she said, and I said, well, maybe I didn't want one. Oh, God, she was just so angry at me. How can you say that? What do you, what do you think I should do? Should I just marry anybody? And I said, yeah, a lot of people do, because that's how much they want a child. You can't tell me that women don't do that. I know they do that, right? We all basically get the lives we want. 
And then when they're not perfect, we rail against somebody or something because two plus two is always gonna equal four. At my very first job, with my very first sponsor, I wrote my very first, I guess, you know, fourth step inventory. And like I said, this is, I'm 65 now, so this was many years ago. I worked on the 11 to seven shift. And one of my very first dilemmas in this program was, they had fired the housekeepers on the 11, 11 to seven shift. And they wanted the nurses to empty the trash cans. So of course, I called my sponsor immediately because I didn't like this. This wasn't right, it wasn't fair, and it shouldn't be this way. So I go on this diatribe of, I didn't go to school to empty trash cans. They actually need to, to get those housekeepers back. And she listens to this whole story and she said, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash can? But that isn't what I wanted. I didn't want easy. I wanted what was right, what was coming to me, what, you know. That sort of thinking, I believe today, that sort of machinations of the brain rev up my eating disorder. It causes that restless, irritable, and discontent that the big book talks about. Let me just read you something to illustrate my point, taken from the doctor's opinion. Men and women eat essentially because they like the effect produced by overeating. So we don't, we don't eat because we like the taste of food or to be social. We're looking for that effect. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, this way of life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent. Because of that, restlessness, irritability, discontent, that is why we succumb to the desire. Because that gives us a temporary, and it's very temporary, by the way, temporary ease and comfort. And that is when the phenomena of craving develops and an overeating spree comes from that. But it's all in the thinking. It's the thinking. It's the restlessness that starts that out. It's not the food. The food is not the problem. In fact, for many years, the food was the solution to the problem. So if you are new, what you might learn in Overeaters Anonymous is there is a solution. And that solution is to have a community that will tell you the truth, not only about your food, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about abstinence too. Um, but talk about some of those perceptions, some of those anxieties, some of those feelings of angst and dis-ease that kick that compulsive overeating into overdrive, you know, that create that hunger and that longing and, you know, it constantly feels like, you know, at least it did for me, like I was swimming upstream and, um, I get a sense of ease and comfort now, not from food, um, but because I have a, you know, a way to communicate with my fellow people, you know. Um, I'll, I'll tell you just some of, it, some of my character defects, and, and one of them is uh, what I call assigning motive. So assigning motive means I not only know what you did to offend me, I know why you did it. And sometimes assigning motive gets me more 
and more a problem when I think I know what drives you uh, than what, what actually happened. And the truth is, I don't even know what drives my behavior, let alone what drives your, yours. But there's a form of a, a sense of arrogance about me that I constantly have to uh, pray about. Also, I don't think uh, my number one addiction is food. My number one addiction is drama. It's what I was raised with. I don't feel I'm alive unless I have drama in my life, you know? Um, and I did a lot of things to stir the pot and cause drama. I had dramatic friends, dramatic jobs. When I was a nurse, I worked in a critical care unit, saving the day. Um, you know, I had dramatic men in my life right up until I was 35. I'll tell you a little bit about my last uh, boyfriend. He was an unemployed 300 pound musician who did not even have a car. In fact, he had a bicycle and I'm not sure that wasn't stolen. And um, he, he, I was 35 at the time. He, he walked out of my house and I said, God, whatever it is in me that would have me attracted to a man like that, I am now willing that you take it. That's how the sixth and seventh step works we see things are hindering us, taking our lives apart, whether it's food, a man, um, you know, perpetual chaos, the wrong kind of friends. Um, and we ask God to take that from us and change us. But that meant I had to partner up with God. And for me, that meant I had to date men that were kind of boring. I had to date men that were self-supporting through their own contributions, men with jobs, Men who did the same thing at the same time, came home at the same time, men that were reliable. And for many years, until the compulsion and addiction went away for drama, I had dramatic friends too. And now I can honestly say that, you know, there's never been a desire to date an unemployed drug addicted man. And um, I'm very grateful for that. Now, because I spend a lot of time compulsive overeating and being involved in drama and quitting and taking on new jobs and having many relationships, and sometimes one time I left the country for six months, um, you know, I, I don't think I had the normal growth and development that most people had at my age. I didn't get married till I was 35, and I didn't have my first child till I was 40. And... Um, you know, so I'm just a late bloomer in a lot of respects. I really didn't even finish the degree, that my college degree that I set out to get until I was 59 years old. <laughs> That's when I really finished up my college education too. So, um, you know, I did a lot of things late because I wasted a lot of time spinning my wheels, a lot of time in fantasy. Um, you know, I want to, um, somebody asked me to tell this story uh, the, the last time I spoke, and it's about my mother. A uh, few of you in this room knew my mother and met my mother. Uh, she was from Covina, and she went to Overeaters Anonymous for a while. She was quite a character. But um, I was always writing on her because she never behaved like I thought she would, like I thought she should. And uh, when I got married, you know, she, uh, I, like I said, I was 35. 
and I took her wedding dress shopping with me. I don't know why I did that. And um, I stood up on that platform where they pull the train in back of you and in front of the mirror. And I turn around, my mom is outside having a cigarette. So she's not looking at me in this wedding dress. And I was shocked and I was stunned, yet that was just so typical of my mother. She was just in another world, you know. So I get home and I'm crying hysterically. And I tell my sponsor, can you believe this? Do you, do, you, do you think this is too much to ask of a mother that she'd look at me in this wedding dress? And she said, no, Helen, I don't think it's too much to ask of a mother. I think it's too much to ask of your mother. And there we were again at two plus two is four. I wanted it to be three, but oh yeah, another reminder. This is my mother. And I believe everything, that everything in our life today is carefully constructed for our growth and development. I have the mother that I was meant to have. I don't know why. It was very difficult, you know. Um, and I thought we would have these wonderful moments right before she died. She would take everything back <laughs> and be this different person. She never was, even on her deathbed. She was the same kind of person, you know. Um, but I can use a lot of that and be a very uh, different mother, you know. What I, needed, what I needed to do is lower my expectations. And God, if there's one place you can find a mother that's a surrogate, that's in Overeaters Anonymous. A lot of people are willing to stand in and take that role for you. And a lot of people, you know, did that for me. Uh, one of them just recently died. She was 84. Her name was Rosie. A lot of you I knew her and met her. And uh, she was, you know, like a mother. And her husband, Gary, was, you know, like, uh, I remember when I got married, he helped me pick out my china. <laughs> we, we had a lot of, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful times that I just am extremely grateful for. Um, I uh, seem I kind of have a long uh, time. I, uh, I'll tell another story about, um, you know, my character defects and my expectations. At this same wedding when I was 35, because my uh, father had died, I asked my brother to walk me down the aisle. And he said, I will if you rent the tuxedo. And I thought, oh my God, what kind of a loser is this? He won't even rent a tuxedo. So I called my sponsor to tell her what a loser he was. And she said to me, if I were you, I'd rent him that tuxedo. And I thought, obviously, that would be enabling him. He should want to rent this tuxedo. He should be honored to be in my wedding. On and on I went. And uh, I didn't talk to him, even though I had many years of recovery, I didn't talk to him for two years after this. Like I said, this was years ago. And this, the reason I tell this story, it's so exemplar of some of the epiphanies we have if we're willing to stick around. And I just want to tell you, I did not listen to my sponsor. Two years later, he calls me and says, he's getting married. Would I come to his wedding? So I said, sure, I come to his wedding and I have this wonderful epiphany at his wedding. I look at him and notice at his own wedding, he is not wearing a tuxedo. He looks nice, he's just not wearing a tuxedo. And I realize my character defect. 
I expect you, whoever you are, to do for me what you are unwilling to do even for yourself. And that is what we talk about in the big book when we talk about selfish and self-centered behaviors. We oftentimes expect other people to turn themselves inside out to meet our needs, to become people they aren't. So we will be comfortable. And I did not see that till two years later and I made a decision and it's particularly hard now for many different reasons. I made a decision to have my brother in my life no matter what. And uh, that means I have to accept him for the person that he is, not the person I want him to be, not the brother I think I deserve, but the person that he really is. And I have to accept him and love him under those um, you know, circumstances. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about my abstinence and some of the rules that I have. And they don't always involve food. There is this... Uh, guy who has a TV show called The Dog Whisperer, some of you know him, but his famous line about how to raise a healthy, well-adjusted dog is that you should have rules, boundaries, and limitations. <laughs> and that's exactly what I think about Overeaters Anonymous and people in it. I wake up at the same time, I go to bed at the same time. Those are things that keep me safe as if I'm a two-year-old. It quells the anxiety. Um, I often have the same foods. I only get my food from grocery stores. That may sound crazy, but some people get it from 7-Elevens, gas stations, uh, 99 cent stores. I've heard lots of stories, but uh, not me. I only get food from grocery stores. I also think abstinence begins at the store, not at the plate. Because if it's in my house, unless it's earmarked for somebody else, um, you know, I'm probably going to eat it. So as I pass through the threshold of Trader Joe's, I say, I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, that I only make sane decisions, that nothing unsane ends up in that cart. Because if it's not in the cart, I'm not going to go out and get it. I can't eat it if it's not in the shopping cart. And, you know, our nephew came to stay with us a couple weeks and he asked for a little thing of ice cream. I don't even know what's a quarter of pine anymore because, you know, we don't buy it. But so he gets this little thing, this little tub of it, and he sits down, <laughs> he sits down to eat it. He just sticks the spoon in it. <laughs> and I send him back and I say, nope, you're not going to eat that with a spoon in it in front of me. You are going to get a scoop. You're going to scoop up two scoops in a bowl. You can go back as many times as you want, but I'm not going to sit and watch you with a spoon in there like a caveman eat that ice cream until it's gone. Well, you want to know the interesting thing about this story? And he's a young like, teenager, right? He literally only had the two scoops because that was all that was in the bowl. And I'm quite certain if he sat there with that spoon in there, he would have plowed through it like a caveman, right? but I just wasn't willing to watch it. And I, you know, I measure things out and uh, because of my dear friend, Lorraine, I'm a vegan now and I've been a vegan for uh, two years, been a vegetarian for four years. And you know, that doesn't guarantee you sanity around food anymore because vegan food has really changed. It's not just beans and quinoa anymore. There's a lot of latitude to get yourself in a lot of trouble, but, I will say this, I'm 65 and not on blood pressure medications or cholesterol medications or 
diabetes medications. So, um, you know, it's, I, th I think that it is helping. And because it's more carbohydrate laden, um, the, um, you know, complex carbohydrates, I think the cravings are down, you know, um, somewhat too. Um, so um, I have not had perfect abstinence. I've been kind of in a normal body weight though for, you know, 20 years. And um, I just don't eat my trigger foods. And, uh, you know, 12 years ago, um, I gave up all fast foods. And I know that a lot of fast foods have gone vegan now, but you know what? I broke the habit. So why would I go back into a fast food restaurant when I don't have that habit anymore? I'm so grateful I don't do that. Uh, if I've got a few minutes, I'll tell you about the last time I ate fast food. Do I have at least five minutes? And just show you the the way that we think compulsive overeaters. When I was eating fast food and when I was eating meat, this probably happened about 12 years ago, um, I used to allow myself to go to a fast food burger place and I used to always get the same thing, a hamburger, fries, and a Diet Coke. And I was teaching nursing, I was sitting with uh, one of the students and she said, no, you're just eating regular fries? You gotta try these, and she named the fries. These are fries that are carefully constructed to give the fry more surface area. I won't tell you what they're called, but they're different. So I ate these fries and I said, oh my God, I'm never gonna have a normal French fry again. These are the best things that I've ever had. So um, I'm happy eating my new kinds of fries once a week with my burger. And then some other student comes a week later and says, oh, you've got the blah, blah, blah fries? You know what? You've really got to dip those in ranch dressing. And so I dipped those in ranch dressing and I got sicker than I have ever been in my whole entire life. And I swore off that day and I've not been back to a fast food restaurant for burgers, fries, or anything else. And that was 12 years ago. And I am just very, very grateful um, about that. Uh, Cause you know, nothing good happens in a fast food restaurant. And it just makes my life easier. And the road really does for me get narrower. Um, and with my behavior too, the, you know, I've had a lot of changes outside of the COVID um, I retired a year before I was supposed to because the job place no longer felt or resembled the job I had known and loved for 20 years. And I had to make a call. And today, nothing is as precious as my sanity. And I had to give up that job after 20 years and I retired. And it has not been an easy transition for me. But I know like everything else, it is also carefully constructive for my growth and development. It's a learning opportunity. It's a time to bring me closer to God, closer to my family. And at some point, I'm going to adjust to this retirement. I want to say it's been difficult, and I have not adjusted yet. Um, but I know well, that... Well, you have two, how many minutes? Two minutes left. Two. Thank you. I now understand the problem. I understand the solution is spiritual. I stay in the moment. I quit playing God. 
I quit asking God to be my messenger boy and I go along with the plan. My favorite line in the big book says, we are here to play the role he assigns. And sometimes we don't like that role because it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, not fair, you know, just a myriad of things. But if we can stay in the moment and continue to work the 12 steps and work with others, we will always look back and see that God's timing is perfect. God's world is perfect. The people he puts in our world are perfect. And I am so grateful to be part of this fellowship and trudge this road of happy destiny with all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. Everyone join me in thanking Helen for just a second in your mind. <laughs> um, now Thank is you. The time, now is the time <laughs> for questions only. We have one minute for one quick question. If you have a question for Helen, you can raise your hand in the participant box, raise your blue hand, and I will call on the first hand that I see. And I don't see a hand. Ah, I do see one. Carrie, Carrie A. One time for a quick question. Hi, thank you so much for your share. I'm Carrie, comfortable reading restrictor. So great to hear you. My question is actually about your veganism. I've been a vegan for five years, um, and I was wondering um, how that shapes your abstinence and how you maintain um, clean and healthy uh, practices, even as a vegan. Because um, sometimes our, our carbs or whatever it is, our kids tend to be higher. So I was wondering what that um, looks yeah, like for you. Thank you. You know, in some respects, I think it's helped me because I think, you know, I was a little bit carb deficient. I think, you know, when you have an animal on your plate three times a day, just with some vegetables, I think, you know, for me, I was always wanting more carbs. And so I think I eat actually less bad carbs now because I have brown rice. I have a lot of beans. I have a lot of tofu, but I'm not a really clean uh, vegan. Sometimes I have restaurant food. I have um, never fast food, but um, I went to this place that kind of teaches you how to do it the right way, you know, with no oil, no salt, just everything natural, no bread. And I did that for a week. And uh, boy, it, it's not easy to do. And I'm not there yet. And I just look at it the same way I looked at my abstinence. It's progress, not perfection. And um, one of the people I sponsor is vegan and a couple of my friends are vegan. And we, in Los Angeles, I don't know where you live, but in Los Angeles, um, before this pandemic hit, we had vegan nights. So we, I think the same way, you have to build a community of like-minded people that think the same way about food. And uh, I've built that community. I have a strong community. My daughter is vegan and she's 25 and my husband is all, I can't believe that he went vegan. I just can't believe that, but he did. Isn't that amazing? Um, well, I think, I think yeah. that's um, probably the, the time limit we have for your question. Okay. Thanks so much, Helen. Thank 